It's easy to look back at times gone by with a rosy nostalgia. But a closer look at the history books will show a different picture. And the coronavirus pandemic has echoes in history. And maybe we can learn a thing or two from the past. I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver. And this is Why. You know, it's easy to think that the coronavirus pandemic is one of the worst health crises ever. But open up the history books and you'll find that ever since people started living in communities, diseases have run through those populations. And if you open those same history books, go back 102 years, you'll find a pandemic that had Canada in its grips. I'm talking, of course, of the 1918 influenza pandemic, also known as the Spanish flu. So how does what we're going through in 2020 compare with what happened in 1918? Let's go to Edmonton for that. Susanna Wagner is a health historian in Edmonton and a recent graduate of uh, an MA in history and joins us now. Thanks for your time, Susanna. Thanks so much for having me. So as part of, uh, you know, completing your master's, uh, you did some research uh, and uh, let's start there. What was what did you go into uh, your research project uh, hoping to find and what did you find? Well, I started my master's with the idea that I was going to look exclusively at Canadian military nursing in the First World War. And then partway through, I was offered a um, research assistant position looking at the Spanish flu or the 1918 epidemic flu in Edmonton. So I took some time to research the 1918 flu. Um, And it was really fascinating. Basically, what I focused on was the city of Edmonton and the University of Alberta. And I did my research through primarily newspaper reports. Um, I tried to find archival materials as well, but was disappointed by the dearth of um, papers related to the flu that are preserved in archives. So most of my sources ended up being newspaper reports which provide a really interesting window into how the community reacted to the flu um, in 1918. Uh, are you talking about how the, the, the newspaper captured some of that public um, sentiment mm-hmm. of the flu? Tell us more about that. How did Edmontonians and Albertans, how did they uh, react to you know, the, the flu, the onset of the, of the influenza pandemic, and then um, you know, as the pandemic wore on? Well, I think you need to look at both the official government-mandated reactions, and then you need to look at the more grassroots reactions to the flu. Mm-hmm. So we see in October 16th, the University of Alberta decided to close. Um, The first case arrived in Alberta, um, or pardon me, the first case arrived in Edmonton in October 1918 on the 18th. So the university closed a little bit in advance. But then the city itself really mobilized because the number of cases of the flu that were starting to spring up And the realization that this flu was affecting people primarily between the ages of 20 and 40, or 25 and 45, depending on the stats that you read. And that had a a very detrimental effect on general livelihood, because these are the parents, these are the workers, um, this is your most active.
active group of citizens. And in an era before furnaces that were electric or gas-fired that functioned without human intervention, in an era before prepared food, um, there was a lot more labor went into actually surviving your daily life. So as this really critical segment of the population started to get sick, there was an increasing effort on part of Edmontonians to provide relief is the term that they used. So the mayor and the clergymen of Edmonton got together and they divided the city into either 15 or 16 districts, depending on the report. And each of these districts had sort of a central hub And that hub would generally be housed in a school because all the schools had been closed to prevent um, spread of the flu. Then within that school, there would be a telephone and an organizational system. And it would be filled with volunteers from the local area. And if you needed help of any kind, you could phone there and ask for assistance. And they, they really would help you with anything. They would run errands for you. They would care for your children. They would come and shovel coal or chop wood or prepare food or do your dishes. Um, Doing your laundry was a fairly common one because there was a fair bit of concern about flu germs being spread um, through linens and the importance of clean linen. And of course, before the kinds of uh, handy washing machines we have today, laundry was a much more um, onerous chore. So we have this very strong volunteer base. And then overlapping with that, the city divided in was divided into four nursing districts. And those functioned much the same way as the relief districts, except that they distributed nursing care. So again, generally housed in a school. The Victoria High School was a really busy uh, nursing district office. They had everyone from trained nurses, of whom there was definitely a shortage, to untrained volunteers who would step into the breach, as it were. And so you could phone these nursing stations and ask for nursing help. And every day, the newspaper published a list of phone numbers for each of the different districts in um, in Edmonton. I, I find that really fascinating, the fact that the community, uh, Edmonton was about 50,000, 53,000 people at the time. The, the fact that, that that community really seemed to gather together, rally together, volunteer their time, their efforts, their resources, really try to uh, pull everything together in order to, to help people um, through the flu or, or through, the, through this influenza pandemic and uh, uh, and the like. I'm wondering if, if I know that your research focused mostly on Edmonton, but I'm wondering if, if you saw similar trends in cursory reading of, of uh, instances across Canada during this uh, 1918 uh, pandemic. It is really impressive. Um, I, I think that I, I'm always blown away by the the amount of volunteerism that was offered very freely and by the danger that these volunteers were exposing themselves to. Um, In terms of other cities, um, there definitely were nurses and less trained women who maybe had taken a course in home nursing with the St. John's Ambulance Society, who would go out and do um, 
other nursing or even run makeshift hospitals. And there's a lot of reports, especially in the country um, and in, in isolated rural areas, of neighbours going from one farm to the next to make sure that their neighbours were alive and warm and feeding their animals, um, which, again, in the middle of winter makes it even more um heroic, I think. Yeah, that's a great word. And I'm wondering, Susanna, you talked about how people came together. And I think we saw that a lot during the beginning of this pandemic. Back in March, people were buying groceries for those who are immunocompromised. And there was a lot of push to back small business. But we also saw the other side of it with hoarding. Was there any hoarding back then? Were people rushing out to get supplies for themselves instead of maybe thinking of the greater good? You know, that's an interesting one. I I was really surprised in March when, you know, I'm in the middle of a pandemic myself, and hoarding was not something that I had seen in the newspapers. Um, what I did see, though, to sort of offer the other side of the coin for that volunteerism were constant articles begging people to volunteer, saying that they were short of volunteers. I mean, these would be beside lists of massive lists of names of volunteers but then there would still be articles every day in the newspaper calling for more volunteers often guilting people into volunteering by talking about families who died um, because you know they called for help but there was no one to send Mm -hmm. so perhaps hoarding of one's personal safety or um, hoarding of one's time (laughs) but uh, not so much hoarding of objects or supplies. Uh, Susanna, we've also talked about how we don't want to use the past to predict our future, but I do wonder if we have learned at least from mistakes made in the past. We saw a spike in cases, now we're seeing a second wave, and it's up to debate if we're acting right on it, and of course, history will tell us. But can we learn from, and have we learned from, mistakes made in the past, at least in your opinion? Well, I think we definitely can learn from um, from what's been done in the past, and, and I think that that's one of the reasons that we need to study history um, and one of the reasons that archives are so essential. Um, Damascus is a really interesting one though because masks were also made mandatory provincially um, in 1918. So whereas now it's, it's being done by municipality, at that point the provincial government did make it mandatory across the province. Um, but in talking with different people, I often encounter this idea that people in the past were more compliant to public health advice, and I don't believe that to be the case. So if you look at pictures of uh, the end of World War One Armistice Day celebrations on November 11th, these are massive crowds of people, and legally they should all be wearing masks but only a few of them actually are. Mm. Um, they had closed down the courts as one of the precautions against large gatherings and spreading the flu. And they reopened the courts in order to prosecute cases of people who were not wearing masks. <laughs> um, so in some ways, there are definitely some parallels there between, I mean, even the city of Edmonton made mask wearing on public transit. At that point, it was streetcars, but they made that mandatory. Uh, So we've seen that today. 
but, you know, just like we see today, some people not wanting to wear masks. There was definitely a similar sentiment at the time. Did any of your research uh, go into or explore uh, some of the economic effects of the 1918 pandemic? Yes. So this was a question that came up over and over again in my mind. And I found very little. Hmm. And I think that this is one of those flags. Um, Any research is going to have boundaries, um, Mm -hmm. what you have covered and what you have not covered. And the newspaper reports as a source of information were incredibly rich, but they definitely have limitations. And one of those is the perspective that, uh, and, and the groups of people they represent. So I got very little from the perspective of working class Edmontonians almost nothing from the perspective of non-white or non-British Edmontonians. So my research then really tells the story of middle-class British uh, Edmonton. And so a lot of the people who would have been most strongly affected economically are not represented in those reports. What we do see are... I think you would almost call it the discovery of poverty by middle-class Edmontonians. Hmm. So you have these large volunteer organizations, and they are generally staffed by middle-class Edmontonians, primarily by women, um, although there definitely were men involved as well. And in their capacity of home help or nursing care, they went into the homes of um, people across the city. And the result was definitely shock from some of these people who didn't realize that there were people in the city living in such terrible conditions. And there's some very interesting letters and reports about them describing the crowded conditions or the poor ventilation or other less than ideal situations that they discovered. And their horror at the fact that people were living like that. Um, yeah. Uh, so there's there's a quote that, as we've you know uh, had this conversation, has come to mind uh, that mm-hmm. is incorrectly attributed to Mark Twain, and that is history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Um, and but you've said yourself <laughs> that you don't like to uh, look to history to predict or, uh, to, to predict the future. But I'm wondering if there are things that you are looking to as we enter the first winter with this coronavirus pandemic, things that you are looking to that, given your understanding of, of history and, and your your, under, your study of, of people and, you know, the city of Edmonton, things you're looking to that may or may not happen um, given the, 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 the winter that we're facing with this, uh, with this unwelcome guest. Um, well, I am curious about how, I mean, we, we've seen this ongoing appreciation for nurses. We've seen discussion about concern about women's economic recovery. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that this sort of accord that it strikes, if you will, from 1918 is a changed emphasis on which labor was important So during 1918, you often saw lengthy reports in the newspaper 
that detailed how volunteers were doing mundane things like cooking and laundry and cleaning. And these are topics, domestic domestic topics, that generally would never merit newspaper column space. And suddenly they did. And we even saw the, the calls a little bit later uh, during the, the pandemic, call for male helpers and male volunteers and male nurses and saying that the, the only qualification necessary was willingness to follow the nurse's orders, which is a huge flip of the way things often functioned um, in that era. And so I, I find the, the distinction where in 1918, suddenly that mundane domestic work of women that's usually not discussed became something to write about in the newspaper. And today's experience of women's much slower economic recovery to be a very interesting comparison and something to keep an eye on. So I'll be very interested to see what happens with that and with uh, general appreciation for domestic labor and caring work. This has been a fascinating conversation, Susanna. I, I really uh, appreciate you uh, taking us down, uh, you know, uh, t- t- allowing us to step into your time machine that is your your uh, your uh, uh, work and, uh, and your research. Um, if people want to learn more about the 1918 influenza pandemic in Canada, uh, what are some resources that you would point some folks to? Well, the first author that I would suggest everyone read is Mark Humphreys. He's written um, a lengthy book, uh, ironically enough now, called The Last Plague, um, that looks at the administrative reaction to the flu in Canada as a whole. And it's fascinating. But he also has a number of smaller articles that look at more specific aspects of the flu, and some of them are specific to Alberta. So I would definitely recommend looking for Mark Humphrey's work. This is Why is produced by me, Dave McIver, and Adam Toy. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email, thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Wash your hands, stay safe, and wear a mask. We'll see you soon.